welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Raina Markert, and today I'm excited to be joined by Sheila O'Connor, author of Evidence of V, a novel in fragments, facts, and fictions. Sheila O'Connor is the award-winning author of six novels. Today, I'll be talking with Sheila about Evidence of V, her new genre-bending book for adults that combines flash forms, archival documents, memoir, and historical research to reconstruct the buried history of incarcerated girls. Honors for Evidence of V include the Minnesota Book Award, the Forward Editor's Choice Award, Marshall Project's Best Criminal Justice Book of the Year, as well as others. Her other books are Where No Gods Came and Tokens of Grace, and her novels for readers of all ages include Until Tomorrow, Mr. Marsworth, Sparrow Road, and Keeping Safe the Stars. We'll start the podcast with a reading of one of my favorite chapters of the book, Quarantine. Quarantine Reception Wing There is nothing V can give the other girls. No disease, no contraband. She only owns a regulation comb and toothbrush now. Still, she's contained in isolation like a germ, subjected to their interviews and tests, Manto, Wasserman, vaginal smear, psychological, educational, achievement. A thorough investigation to ensure V is classified correctly. Bed, table, dresser, chair. This is all V has for comfort now. A land of green and girls outside her window. The distant hum of inmates just like V. Footsteps in the hallway. The sealed jar of Higby Hospital closed tight around V's brain. At night, a lightning storm foreshadows hell. V could die alone in these moist sheets, die of want and terror, die before this baby's even born. And where is M right now? Her hand in Lou's, two girls running from police like it's a lark. Mr. C closing up the Cascade Club, wiping a damp towel across the bar or fingering V's button in the pocket of his pants. Mr. C dreaming of his V, his little fox, his Venus, his private perfect dancer. Another girl is dancing for him now. In the morning, Higby Hospital glares bright and disinfectant clean, and V can hear her mother's voice whisper from the walls. Thank you so much for reading that. Um, Sheila, you're a professor of creative writing at Hamlin, and you've written several award-winning books, including a book about Vietnam, though this book is about your maternal grandmother who was incarcerated for quote-unquote immorality, which from from a 21st century standpoint was rape. Uh, Did you learn anything new while writing it, and how does Evidence of V stand out against your catalog? Well, in in terms of the catalog, I would say that this book is a is a hybrid text, which means that it combines historical documents, um, archival documents, photographs, and it also combines fiction, poetry, nonfiction to tell the story. So in that way, it works as a kind of collage and this is my sixth novel, and this mm-hmm. is the first one that I've done that has been a novel in pieces. 
all of my books, I would say, have had a historical element to them that required research and required me to transport to another time and place. In terms of what I learned writing the book, what I learned writing the book was tremendous because when I first launched into this research, I had no idea that any of this had even existed. Mm. Yeah, it's, I mean, reading your author's note and how this is such a deeply personal story for you, it gave the book a whole new spin for it for me. And you balance being an author, a narrator, and a character. Have you done that in any of your books before? <laughs> never. No, never. Right. That that was a trifecta, the author, the character, the narrator. Um that was that was a new journey for me. In fact, this is the first book that I have been present in in any overt way. You know, mm. I think an author is always present in their books because they are bringing the book to life. So you always have a sense of a human behind a story, somebody that's um, creating it, the invisible hand. But in this book, this was the first time that I entered the book. Yeah. What was that process like for you? Well, the book is written in fragments and it and the pieces where I entered the book were literally fragments, which is that I when I was first writing these pieces, I didn't know it would be a book and I was just um, creating the pieces and when I would hit moments in my creating the pieces where I'd say, you know, like everyone that knows the truth is dead or, you know, something where I'm thinking about um, there's nothing I can know about this man. And, and they're more like moments of storyteller frustration and realizing that I will never have the information that I need to tell a standard narrative or at least the kind of narrative I was after. And those moments when I began to construct the book, I, I just put them in there because I began to want the reader to go through the same reconstructing from the evidence process that I had gone through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you, when you were creating the character of V, did it feel like you were creating a new person or did you feel any connection to your maternal grandmother? I felt that I was creating a new person. Mm. I felt that I was creating a person that a girl like my grandmother could have been. Yeah. But I was also very aware because I understand the act of fiction that it was fiction, you know, that I, I had no way of knowing that 15 year old girl. And I wasn't sure anybody else really would have known exactly what she felt or thought at that time either. So I knew that in getting in trying to reach some kind of understanding with what may have happened with my grandmother and with my mother, it was going to require a deep imaginative leap. Yeah. Yeah. Did your mom read your book? She didn't. No. Um, she had um late stage memory loss by the time the book was published, so she wasn't able to read it. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
And she um, she actually died right fairly shortly after the book was published. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So I, I think it I think she would have really loved the book. Mm-hmm. But uh, I know that she would have been really interested in a lot of the breakthrough research that I was able to do in the last couple of years. Yeah, I was so surprised to learn that the court held the documents for a hundred years. Mm-hmm. And it was only with a letter to the court that you were able to see these deeply personal documents. Yes, it's that's a that is another true fact that many people are unaware of, which is that adoptees in Minnesota before a certain point, um, before a certain year, are not able to, they have no access to their personal history, their documents, the knowledge of their origin or their identity. And we came, you know, up against that directly when my mother and I asked to get these documents. And we're told that we couldn't do them without a court order. We were fortunate that the court granted her request. Is it but I will say that the court only will only in this case granted the request with a death certificate. So we had to be able to prove that V was dead. Wow. So for an adoptee where they don't have the information in order to get the death certificate, this is a nearly impossible task. Why do you think they make it so difficult? Uh, It has to do with the history of adoption in the United States and the history of adoption in Minnesota. And it's, and these laws are still in place in Minnesota. Other states have lifted them, but um, it, it, it had to, has to do with the idea that the adoptee, um, actually that the birth mother's privacy should be protected at all costs. Mm. Gotcha. And you've spoken in interviews before about how your book opened up the floodgates for other people that have been affected by these schools, people whose mothers and grandmothers and even survivors themselves have reached out to you. And what's it like to be a part of that community? Well, it feels it's gratifying because as I began to uncover this history, this very little known history and came upon so many obstacles to get even the smallest grain of information about it, I kept thinking, if I'm looking for this, there's other people who need this information as well. And there are other people for whom this book is going to answer questions that they have. Now, none of us, we're all in the exact same boat. We can't know in a literal way exactly what happened to these girls uh, for each one of them. But one thing I will say is that every person who has contacted me that is a descendant or a survivor has the exact same story mm. of the, you know, in every single case, they were a victim of sexual abuse as a child wow. or as a teenager and then were sentenced there. Mm-hmm. It, oh not God. pregnant, not necessarily pregnant. There weren't that, that. It was a small portion of the girls that were sentenced there that were pregnant, but I believe it was a very large percentage that had been sexually assaulted and, and thus considered immoral. Wow. 
And the reason that I say sexually assaulted is because they were minors, you know, eight, yeah. nine, 10, 12 years old. And these were men. I, one of the examples that you wrote about that really stuck out to me was an eight-year-old girl and she could be imprisoned just for not obeying her parents. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yes, they were they were actually proud of that fact in the piece the superintendent speaks which is uh an actual historical document. It was a talk that was delivered in the early days of the institution and the superintendent says, you know, nor is immorality necessary. A girl can simply be in danger of becoming immoral. Wow. Wow. The important thing, though, that I think people, I, I want people to be aware of as they encounter this history is realizing that not one of those girls had committed any kind of crime. And that is, that's a historical fact. They weren't charged with a crime. They hadn't committed a crime. And yet they were institutionalized in a juvenile detention facility under the prison system as inmates and were held there for the length of whatever their sentence was until the age of 21. So in the case of V, she had a six-year sentence for being pregnant with my mother. At the in the final years of when the girls reached the end of the sentence and eight ages eighteen to twenty-one, they were sent to uh, individual private homes to work as servants. It was their parole. They were paroled as servants, and um, they were under the jurisdiction during that time of whatever happened to them in the private home. If it didn't work out in the private home, if they escaped, if the home didn't want them, they were sent back to the school and began their sentence over. Wow, they would have to start from the beginning? Yes, they start well, they started their process of of qualifying for parole again from the beginning and that was a a long um process of being trained in cooking cleaning, laundry, um, the various household tasks, sewing, until you passed all those, each one as a unit, waitressing, food service to a certain level, and then you could move on to the next. And it wasn't until you completed all of those to, to an acceptable degree that you qualified to even be paroled. Wow. We'll pause here for a quick word from our founder and editor, Colin Mustful. Stick around for after the break. We have more great conversation with Sheila. Hello, this is Colin Mustful, the founder of History Through Fiction and the host of this podcast. I hope you're enjoying the interview and I want to thank you for listening. History Through Fiction is a small, independent press, and we'd love your support. You can support us and our authors by subscribing to this podcast, subscribing to our website, buying our books, asking your local library or bookstore to stock our books, or just by telling a friend about us. With your support, we can create more content like this and continue to bring important and entertaining historical stories into the world. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you enjoy the rest of the interview. 
We're back now with Sheila O'Connor discussing evidence of V and how horrible the conditions were for young women and girls incarcerated in Minnesota and just how much they had to go through. Wow, it just gives me a stomach ache just thinking about it. I mean, the things that these girls went through and I had no idea about any of it until I read your book. I I think that that is the case for most people. I mean, I've even spoken to legal scholars, um, women's history scholars here in, in Minnesota alone that had no knowledge of this happening to these girls. People knew that girls were sent to Sock Center, just like we know that boys are sent to Red Wing, were sent to Red Wing, and are still sent to Red Wing. The assumption that people carried was that those girls must have done something wrong. They were, Mm -hmm. as people said to me so often early in my research, oh, where they sent the bad girls, you know? So the assumption was that they had committed some kind of unspeakable crime or, you know, affront against society that nobody spoke of because the girls just disappeared and were sent away there. But I think what people didn't realize was that it was a state-ordered institutionalization based often on what had happened to the girls, on the girls themselves having been victimized. Yeah, yeah. Do you see echoes or ramifications of this injustice now in our justice system in the 21st century? Yes, I'm sorry to say that I still do because... It's, it is still the case that girls are most likely to enter the criminal justice system from being victims of um, physical or sexual abuse. And the way that that manifests is often that they come to the attention of welfare systems, but also maybe the girls have run away from home, maybe they're skipping school they've um, begun acting out, you know, and, and again, then they come under the attention of the, of the criminal justice system. And it's ultimately the girls who are the ones who are incarcerated. And this is still happening today. Now, they are not incarcerated for the kinds of sentences that these girls received, but they are still incarcerated. And a very high number of girls incarcerated today Um, have been victims of sexual assault. There is, in fact, a report that's referenced in the back of the book, the sexual assault to prison pipeline that was done by Georgetown Law and um, Rights for Girls and the Ms. Foundation combined. They put together this report, and it talks about girls today. It doesn't even look at the historical patterns So for me, I was looking at something in the 1930s and horrified to find out that we're still having the same conversations. Yeah, yeah. As a reader, my hope is that this book can open people's eyes as it did to mine and get the conversation started, especially around women in the justice system, but anyone of any gender. Did you also have yes. a similar goal in writing it or additional goals? I I think any conversation around incarceration, around the criminal justice system is a worthy conversation because 
it's very easy to look the other way at the way that system is operating. People say to me when I present, you know, across the country, why didn't anybody do anything to stop it? And I, I find that such an unusual question because I don't know what people are doing right now to stop what's happening in prisons in their communities. Yeah. You know, how much do they know about what's going on in facilities, you know, in their own towns or cities or states? People have very little ability on the outside to affect what's happening inside of prisons. But it can be done. I mean, the 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 group that um, did the original conducted the original visit in 1937 to Sauk Center, the Osborne Association, they came, they set out across the United States to look at what was actually happening in these um, facilities for juvenile detention facilities for children. And theirs was the research that I was able, that enabled me to write the book. They are still an active, you know, um, organization for criminal justice reform. So there are plenty of people doing the work, but I think there's a way in which you can look at a story like this and say, how could this have happened? And then I'm hoping the reader will think what's happening today. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I had um, been presenting at the Shakopee prison for women and about this book before the book was even published when I was working on it, I went out and did a writing workshop with some women and read some pieces of this. And when the guard was walking me out to the intake station, he said, oh, your work was really interesting. And I was surprised that he was even listening. He had been the guard through my presentation. And he said, it makes me wonder what people will say about us 30 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. And just hearing him say that, I felt that this was going to begin the kind of conversation I was looking for. Yeah. I imagine as an incarcerated woman to hear those stories, it might feel, well, I think it would bring up so many emotions and one of them might be validated that this is yes. something that has been going on for centuries. Yes. I think it was... I think for the women that I spoke with that had read this book and were incarcerated at Shakopee, there was a definite sense of being seen, being recognized, having a story told that represented their own truth. And I remember a woman saying, you don't just wake up one day and end up in prison. You know, there's yeah. there's many things that happen to us before we end up here. And that certainly was true of the girls during these time as well. The way that the story was going to be told and needed to be told. But I had not anticipated how much of my self and my own grappling would end up in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we are a historical fiction publisher, so I hope you can speak a little to the importance of historical fiction and where that fits in the canon. I think historical fiction is a 
significant and critical lens for people to re-examine or to initially examine the way that things worked in the past in a personal light, in a, in a way in which there are human beings at stake, whose lives are at stake in the stories. And when I was a student, for example, studying history, I felt like I was made to memorize wars and generals and periods and movements and dates and things like that. But I didn't feel that I was ever given a sense of how this affected individual human beings. And to me, historical fiction is one way of making that possible. Uh, nonfiction is as well, poetry is as well, um, documentaries, all of that can happen. But I think there is a place for art to interact with history and for art to give it its own lens. I love that art interacting with history. And I completely resonate with that too. I, you know, it's one thing to do rote memorization and it's another to dive into an individual story. Yes. And, and I'll tell you, there was, this history was never going to be taught in my history classes at any time. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's taught now unless somebody is doing a special course that would involve, um, the history of girls in the juvenile justice system, you know, I mean, those, those courses, yes, they exist, but in a general history course, girls are fairly invisible. Yeah. And yet girls, you know, are a major part of our population and the girls grow up to be women and women are, are half the population and they're raising children. And, you know, everything yeah. has to do with what, what happened to women and what has happened to women historically to form um, the social mores that we even have at this time. Yeah, yeah, completely. Okay, well, one last question to wrap us up. Can you give any advice to new writers, especially since you're a professor yourself of creative writing? I do teach a lot of new writers. I've been I've been teaching for many, many years. And I think the most valuable thing that I can tell anybody, even in a class that is or isn't even interested in writing, but I'm just trying to get them interested in writing, is to write what matters to you. You know, to write about the things that you believe are important and also to write the stories that you have to tell. It mm -hmm. isn't necessarily the idea of, you know, write what you know, because I'm a fiction professor, so I'm happy to see students imagine all kinds of things into being. But each one of us has our own set of um, experiences, beliefs that form who we are. And I think trusting those and believing that the art that they will yield will be original and important is probably the best thing I can say to aspiring writers. That's beautiful. Thank you.
Thank well, you. Sheila, thank you so, so much for being a guest on the History Through Fiction podcast. I really greatly appreciate your time. Well, I'm so grateful this podcast exists and for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sheila O'Connor, author of Evidence of V, a novel in facts, fragments, and fictions. To check out more of her work and to buy a copy of her novel, you can visit her website, SheilaO'Connor.com. We also hope that you subscribe and check out our website, HistoryThroughFiction.com. Thanks to the generous support of our subscribers, we are able to have guests like Sheila on to talk about the importance of historical fiction. Stay tuned this season. We have some great interviews coming up. Thank you again for your time. Thank you.